Welcome to the Wimlex Show, episode number 44. This is Alex Graf, co-founder and co-CEO of Spryker Systems, the fastest growing e-commerce enterprise technology vendor in the market on a global level. Today, our guest is Harsh Acharya, the VP of e-commerce technology and product at Dell Technologies, a $90 billion company. We had a very interesting talk about moving from monoliths to microservices, how to manage such a very, very big transition, how to manage an IT organization with hundreds of developers, how to get in a modus where they don't invest in projects anymore, but rather are managed by OKRs. Super interesting, super interesting learnings. Um, Dell was always one of the leading companies when it um, uh, when it was about selling directly to the customer, B2C and B2B, though their e-commerce infrastructure is super sophisticated and no vendor could so far convince Harsh and his team to use a standard software. So um, let's talk about why this was the case what he has learned, um, and uh, we will also hear about the future outlook of uh, Tell Technologies when it comes to e-commerce. Harsh, welcome to the Wimlex show. We're going to talk today about uh, some um, IT myths and uh, about Dell and your career uh, and how you manage all the very interesting channels, uh, B2B and B2C in this ecosystem. Uh, before we dive into all these questions, uh, please tell us who you are and what you're doing at Dell. Great. Well, thank you very much, first of all, for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, be talking to you. Um, my name is Harsh Acharya like you said, and uh, I have been with uh, Dell for about 13 years now, close to 13 years. And uh, I started my journey with Dell straight out of school as a software engineer, uh, managing uh, product data management systems for, for Dell. Um, and uh, when I first joined, I never knew I was going to stay here for this long, right? As your first starting job, you you learn some things there and then you move on. But uh, I was blessed with uh, fantastic leaders and fantastic opportunities. And uh, I got my way into e-commerce in 2010. And then for the next 10 years, I got to work on some really great e-commerce products, both on B2B and B2C sides. Uh, everything from shopping experience and checkout experience to personalization, loyalty, Black Friday, everything in between. Uh, and, and you know, my interest for e-commerce experiences and engineering and tricks and tips and tactics and architecture just kept growing over the period of time. And uh, five years into my, my foray into e-commerce, I got to lead product management teams uh, for Dell.com. Uh, and then three years from then, I got an opportunity to run engineering and, and product both. Uh, and now I run product engineering and site reliability for both B2C and B2B uh, Dell.com experiences. When I worked like about uh, 10 years ago at a very big retailer in Germany, the Auto Group, we, I had to prepare a lot of um, competitive analysis. And there we had like lists of like biggest um, e-commerce vendors worldwide. And uh, always part of those lists was kind of was Dell. And uh, when we had to explain what is kind of the USP, the business model, it, uh, back, back, back then it was, okay, Dell is like an uh, um, IT, uh, IT provider, like a hardware provider, and it differentiates from other uh, vendors Uh, by selling directly so no wholesale in between therefore and and you can kind of customize your uh, um, um, your device so it was still a very laptop and desktop based world back then when we did the analysis so uh, was it true so where was our assessment true and is it is it still the usp today absolutely uh, michael dell wrote actually a book called direct from dell um, more than a decade ago uh, and that's been uh, our our way of getting in front of our customers to sell them direct. And it started with Dell being the first one, not only allowing customers to buy directly from the company, but also allowing them to configure and build their own machines on our mm -hmm. website. That's how, you know, our e-commerce website uh, came along in early 90s. So absolutely, you know, we, we love having that direct relationship with customers, not only from a standpoint of selling it to them, but it allows us to know our customers really well uh, because we are able to understand what works for them, what does not work for them, and it allows us to continue improving our experience 
to tailor the needs. Is it is wholesale part of your business? So can I can I buy a Dell computer at a Walmart or at a uh, at a consumer electronics store in Germany? Uh, we do have we do have retail presence uh, across the globe, um, especially in regions where retail is still very prominent. Um, some of the some of the European countries, as well as Japan, as you know, is a is a large uh, you know uh, brick and mortar retail. Uh, environment so we do have strategic partnerships with uh, retailers uh, and yes you can go and buy dell products from those retail stores um, and and we we kind of selectively decide what works in that retail environment uh, and we let you pick from those uh, in those stores so yes we we do sell uh, via retail brick and mortar stores as well so when i looked up the numbers correctly um we're talking about a company with like roughly 90 billion in revenue 90 billion plus is this still correct Uh, that is still correct. Yes. Yeah. And, and what part of this 90 billion is uh, uh, is uh, is sold directly to consumers, B 2 B and B 2 B, B 2 C and B 2 B? I don't I don't believe we make those numbers publicly available, and so no? I don't know whether I can share. I didn't know. I, I don't want to trick you here into, <laughs> into stuff. Uh, I don't, don't think. Want to talk but, about. but but uh, you know, just to kind of put it in perspective, um, entire. Uh, Dell PC uh, and, and servers and storage business is kind of split into uh, two kinds of businesses. One is called CSG, which is Client Solution Group, which is all about uh, selling products that our end users use, like you know people like you and me, whether it's in business setting or consumer setting. And then we have uh, ISG, which is our Infrastructure Solution Group, uh, which is uh, which is all about server storage networking. A big part of it came with EMC. Uh, as part of EMC acquisition, and then we got VMware, uh, 80% stake in VMware as part of that as well. And uh, what you see is that when it comes to uh, PCs and servers, uh, laptops, desktops, servers, workstations, you see a lot more direct um, business than indirect. Uh, but then when you go to storage, where you need a lot more customization, you have to people have to understand. Um, The current environment of the data centers, uh, there are, you know, uh, at times uh, system integrators involved. So you see, you see more indirect there than direct. But uh, really, it it varies from region to region based on which regions we were already present in for a long time, which regions we entered later, and and really the culture uh, in those regions, which uh, which varies. Like I said, you know, Japan is a great example where. Um, Brick and mortar retail, at least before COVID, was extremely prominent, uh, and you see, you know, retail stores of the size of parking lots <laughs> in, uh, in 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 Japan. So it really it really still, depends still, on the region. It, it it also changes. So yes. you're saying that um, Dell started direct selling in, in the 90s. You joined when I uh, looked up correctly in two, in 2008. So what did the direct selling infrastructure look like in 2008 that was always already a time when um, e-commerce was uh, very big in the us and and in europe uh, we had a lot of uh, very uh, very um, established standard vendors around like um, um, hybris now sap oracle atg ibm websphere so um, and, and i guess like uh, over the the over the decade before you joined all yeah. those vendors knocked at Dell's door and say you should <laughs> us, uh, Selvia, uh, Selvia WebSphere. So, how how did the infrastructure look like, and uh, how did this discussion go uh, uh, when you started working there? Great question. It takes me down the memory lane. So, first of all, Dell actually started selling direct in '80s when when the company started. We started selling directly online in early '90s, but oh, okay. uh, we mm -hmm. always had the offline, you know, direct business where you can call into the call center and and uh, and buy something. Um, when I joined Dell in 2008. We were just about getting to a point where we had regional e-commerce platforms. So we had homegrown platforms in North America, but in in Europe and APJ, we had um, we had a vendor called uh, Smarts and eSmarts. Uh, they don't exist anymore, uh, but uh, but we were using their platform and infrastructure to run our. Uh, online business when I when I first joined in 2008, um, but we were always a big part uh, homegrown, mainly because of our configure to build model, right? Because even then in 90s when you know this uh, web spheres and and hybrids of the world were were popping up, mm. 
no one had really gotten to a point where they can allow customers to uh, you know, go and configure everything from scratch yeah. and then build it in a way that, you know, the bill of materials can go to the factory. Because when we started selling direct online, we were in just in time build model. You oh, were okay. not just yeah. coming and buying SKUs online, right? It was That's not true. built to stock. So, That's true. so we, you started with the, you started with the hardest part in e-commerce with yes. the configurator. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And it's not just configurator, which allows you to customize things that are already in warehouse. This was configurator that was that had to make sure that the parts are available in the factories, not warehouses, in factories. So when everything comes together, not only everything is compatible and the machine makes sense, but all the validations rules have run and we can actually build that machine with the parts that we have. So it was a pretty tight, you know, coupling with underlying supply chain uh, and you know, compatibility of different parts and the pricing and the cost of parts. So we started with the most difficult part of the puzzle. Uh, and that was our USP. And that's what got people excited that I can go to Dell and I can build whatever I want to build. Hmm. And is it still the case today? Or is it rather people people buy stuff um, that are um, off the shelf? So we see both. Um, for entry-level products, we see people uh, you know, buying what we have stocked. Uh, they just choose from good, better, best options. But as you go into uh, higher-end businesses and gamers is, a, you know, a pretty big uh, and important persona, uh, they like to build their own. And so uh, the model we kind of use is to uh, look at the demand profile in every region and see uh, if we can come up with an 80-20 or 60-40 approach, depending on the region, where certain things we can just build and uh, and stock and some things that we allow customers to build. If you think about it, it is no different than the smartphone wave that we went through. When smartphone first came about, the underlying applications were you know, advancing so fast that smartphones had to continue improving itself from an OS and hardware and memory standpoint to keep up with the demand of those applications. And then people were buying new smartphones every year. And then now it has gotten to a point where you know, I've been using my iPhone for three years now without any issues. Right, and so PCs kind of went to the exact same phenomenon in in, uh, in 90s and early 2000s. And, and what kind of what are, what are, what are kind of model are you using? Is it a configurated model, or it's like just a best offer kind of thing we are we are we are using right now for this podcast? So I have two machines. The one that I use for my personal use, uh, it's an XPS, which is one of our most uh, you know uh, most uh, premium products. Uh, I actually went and built it on my own. Uh, but the one that I use for work is a Latitude, which uh, uh, we have a standard configuration that uh, that we get to pick from, uh, which is actually uh, the the parts of which are picked uh, based on the user profile, which works really well for me. It's a, it's a perfectly sized laptop that allows me to travel around the globe, and I was able to before COVID. Um, and at the same time, uh, it has the right amount of power. So I have a, I have a one that was built to stock, And I have another one that I built it on my own. So when you joined then in 2008, and you've, I guess you've, uh, back then, um, Dell kind of figured out the whole configurator uh, business, uh, something actually lots of e-commerce retailers today don't know how to how to deal with. It's still like the most complicated project they're working right. on. So can you lead us a little bit like through the, uh, uh, through, the um, uh, through the development then after 2008? So what kind of like, big projects uh, have you been then involved because like configuration and B2B and B2C was already solved. So everything was kind of done. So, but yeah. they still needed you, right? Yeah. So I think if you think about the, the journey, when I moved into e-commerce organization in 2010, there were two things that were going on. One was uh, we had just replaced um, the third party systems in EMEA and APJ. And we now had a global uh, online code base, so a, you know, a single code base that um, that served the entire world. But there were two things that we started doing. One was our entire uh, e-commerce platform and experiences were built in 90s, and they were built on uh, a homegrown content management system, which from an availability and resiliency standpoint were great, but they were essentially people setting up XML files and pushing them to the server and then oh. rendering their experiences. And uh, similarly, our you know our card and checkout and everything 
they were not really service oriented architecture based you know there were mm-hmm. there were feeds running all over the places so the first thing we started doing in 2010 is to kind of move away from the pub sub and feed driven model to to you know service oriented architecture uh, to go through go to web services but at the same time right about when we started that uh, smartphones came about so we had to kind of you know create uh, two yeah, parallel paths yeah, two true. parallel paths and we said okay not only we need to move from you know legacy architecture to service oriented architecture but we also need to uh, start pivoting towards uh, building uh, responsive uh, web experiences and so those are the two things we kind of uh, got started on uh, in parallel uh, b2b and b2c both um, and then we also you know tried our hands on mobile apps back then which again we were able to build some fantastic mobile apps it's just that you know the way our business model is and the the kind of products that we sell people don't buy those every single day right you don't need a pc every day so we realized very quickly that uh, while mobile apps you know we can build some really great mobile apps um, unless unless you know we decide to be a marketplace like amazon or ebay which we are not um, you know that it didn't make sense to stay in the mobile app space so that's what How we much, can 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 we stay with this question for a little time because um This kind of discussion took uh, retailers kind of four or five years. So it was not mobile apps. Or it was like rather, should we focus on iOS or on Android? Should, right. we, have, should we go with a hybrid app or a native app? Should we yes. go with a, a responsive setup? So it took them years. So, yes. Uh, uh, and, and how long was this kind of discussion? Uh, so now it seems clear and it <laughs> sounds easy. But can you? But how, how, what was the reality then? So we knew about our buying cycle already. So we knew that we needed a responsive website period because we still were getting, uh, when you are in the business of selling PCs, you you need to have a great mobile experience, but you need to have a great desktop experience because you yeah. are in the business selling desktop. So, so we didn't really have to spend a lot of time debating between responsive web versus mobile apps. Uh, we knew that we needed a responsive website, uh, you know, uh, regardless. So we got started on responsive web I think it's the mobile app where we spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, figuring out whether we should invest in it or not. Uh, and we really uh, started when we decided to kind of try it out just to see if we can drive some kind of, uh, you know, different kind of traction uh, and start, you know, running deals there and start a lot more, selling a lot more electronics and, and peripherals. Um, we tried our hands on both iOS and, and Android but we we tried it in like smaller markets like australia and new zealand right because um, we did a lot more complicated things in in north america where configurations were allowed at you know nth degree level and and some of those things were more difficult to do on apps back then uh, and and in in australia and new zealand it was a it was a playing field where we can do that with a much lower risk uh, and so yeah for us you know the decision of responsive web was not very difficult that's that was a go to Uh, no regret uh, initiative, uh, but mobile apps is something we we cannot debate it. And then we tried out in ANZ, and then we eventually decided that we didn't need it at least for commerce purposes. We still have mobile apps out there that are for support function, services function, things you know after point of sale, uh, where people need it a lot more frequently and often. Uh, oh, we, but but okay, not for then, not for e-commerce. Okay, then I would like to reframe my question because the other big question was uh, in 2008, 2009, how important will mobile be? Uh, and, as you, and, and especially in your product niche, uh, like uh, that is kind of, uh, it's kind of an investment product category. It's not just thing, not right. something you just consume. The There was like, at least until 2013, 14, always like to think, okay, that is a product nobody needs like a mobile website for because when you like decide for a PC or a laptop, you need like a big screen and you select the product only like once in two to three years. So who the fuck will like uh, uh, configure a product like this uh, in a mobile <laughs> environment? So, so harsh, go, go away with your mobile uh, resources uh, request here. Nobody needs it. Uh, uh, no, you're how, absolutely how, right. You're absolutely yeah. right. So we did not really... We were definitely skeptical, like you said, in 2008. And so we didn't really start seriously looking into responsive web until I would say early 2011. Mm. Uh, and that was really based on the penetration we saw with iOS, mm. right? It's like it was moving so fast. So what we saw was um, what we saw was that our, our, our traffic from mobile was increasing more rapidly than, than we thought it would. 
mm. we were still skeptical about conversion on mobile because it's a very high average order value product, yeah. right? And uh, while by that time we were we were already selling build to stock and configuration was optional, you could actually buy things and get it tomorrow. By then we were already there. Um, we still were skeptical about conversion uh, on on mobile, uh, given that you know you are you know you, back then average average product value for consumer PCs was still like you know about thousand dollars or twelve hundred dollars. And so, uh, what we what we what got us was that we decided that the mobile play is not just about conversion, but it's about where you know being where our customers are, right? So we kind of you know we kind of thought about it a different way where let's not let's not just you know decide our investment strategy on mobile based on what our conversion would look like on mobile, but the fact that our customers when they are you know riding on a bus. Uh, sitting next to someone in a car, uh, commuting in a school, they are going to Dell.com on their phone. And while they may not actually pull the trigger, because even back then, like buying something, you know, thousand dollars plus on mobile was not a common thing, right? Uh, it has become a lot more mainstream now than it was then. And so we said, look, it may not, we may not be able to convert people as much on mobile, but if we can get consideration done on mobile. We can give the best experience in mobile where people can decide what they want to buy. And then they come back home and make the actual purchase on desktop. That's still a win, hmm. right? And so we really changed our focus from just being conversion driven to being where our customers are. Uh, and, and that was the decision point where we said, look, we have to invest in mobile purely from a standpoint of being where our customers are. And and uh, for today, it's still true that you uh, that you don't have an app uh, which I can download and then configure my PC. So it's it's rather a, a native mobile experience. Yeah, we don't have a, we don't have mobile apps for from a commerce standpoint, uh, but we do have a responsive website. Uh, so when you go to Dell.com on your phone, you get a mobile friendly experience, which is also adaptive. So we don't simply just you know uh, squeeze the experience to show you the same page on a smaller mm. uh, footprint. Um, we actually make it more adaptive. So a product details page on on desktop web is is one page. On mobile, it's more progressive disclosure based, uh, and with you know uh, with functions that can easily help you navigate through the experience. And did this uh, this experience kind of um, enhanced your B two B buying experience today? So this kind of, all the stuff we've discussed so far is it's kind of very um, end user driven. Uh, yes, because I, I I I don't think like in two thousand eight or even like two thousand nine, lots of B two B procurement or purchasing managers used uh, uh, the mobile version of Dell uh, to decide for uh, for the next infrastructure project, right? No, that's a great point. So no, we we only invest in responsive web for B2C. Um, you know, B2B, to your point, uh, people from a B2B standpoint were shopping and purchasing things for their work needs. And so they were always in their office settings and they always had large monitors. Mm. And mm. so we... We haven't really invested in mobile experience from a B2B standpoint. However, uh, as millennials and Gen Z generation starts becoming procurement leaders, uh, we are seeing the shift. It's still, it's still, you know, a huge percentage disproportionately, disproportionately um, uh, desktop-driven uh, traffic that we see. But what we realized is that, regardless of desktop or mobile. Our B2B customers are now looking for the same level of ease of use, accessibility, uh, and and consumer-like experience. It's really consumerization of B2B commerce experience. So, the way we are now, you know, approaching it is that let's just start, you know, blurring the boundary between B2B and B2C. Let's not think about them as two separate uh, experiences or platforms. We really need one core commerce experience, and we just need to overlay B2B capabilities on top. And that's where we are headed now. So that we are not going and building B2B and procurement specific mobile experiences. We just have one core experience and, and B2B is just overlay capabilities on top. Okay, let's stay on the device device question for for a minute because um, I, I started to write an article uh, yesterday and uh, uh, Chris criticized it already. Uh, <laughs> uh, we had the title uh, which had the title. Um, Desktop seems to be the next uh, brick and mortar. So in, in retail, we saw that most retailers that had this kind of brick and mortar focus in their uh, in their DNA 
they never made the shift into e-commerce. They just didn't get it. For them, right. e-commerce was just a cost center. And what we are now seeing at retailers, B2B, B2C, so different business models. So people that do have now an, uh, a team with like 10, 20 years e-commerce experience that started like with desktop, that they cannot like shift into the mobile world. We see it, for example, at Amazon. So Amazon really sucks at like mobile uh, uh, experience. If you, they try to buy stuff and integrate it in the app and the app is getting more complicated uh, uh, like every month. And then they're looking at Wish right now, I guess, yeah. because uh, Wish is going to IPO in in the next week. And uh, I'm 100% sure we're going to see like a Wish kind of product feed in the Amazon app. So, but there's no... It, it, this kind of transition seems to be very, very hard. So uh, um, I understand that you kind of mastered the desktop uh, 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 game. So, but aren't you afraid that uh, do, do you have the right resources and an approach to um, to tackle this? Uh, not only millennial question, but the I don't know what the group is called after the millennials, but the even younger people now that Gen Z they don't yeah. want to configure they don't want to configure anymore. It's it's kind of this kind of slider feed. So the whole configuration thing changes. Yeah, so what we see is purely from a configuration and non-configuration standpoint, we actually see both, even with the latest generation, because like I said, there are a lot of gamers out there. And believe it or not, gamers still want to go through their own configuration and, and they don't want to just buy something mm -hmm. off the shelf. But you are right, majority of you know students and, and people who just want to get something tomorrow, they just want to they just want to, you know, pick something up from the stock. Um but you are right, the whole transition from desktop to, to responsive web was not easy. It was very difficult. And the reason it was difficult was that you must have heard everywhere that we need to be mobile first experience or mobile first company. The reality is that when you are going from a, a desktop driven experience to now enabling responsive web, where let's say 80% of your business is still coming from desktop experiences. Uh, it is very difficult to come to the terms with just you know, focus on minimum viable product from a mobile experience standpoint and then expand it to desktop because that could impact your conversion on desktop because you have a lot more real estate space. That's where majority of traffic is going. So we did struggle quite a bit initially when we were making that move where we, we really wanted to be mobile first to build the best in class mobile experience, but we kind of had to keep pulling ourselves back because we had to find that delicate balance between building a fantastic mobile experience, but at the same time, not losing existing traffic and conversion that we had on desktop. And, um, mm. and we had to, we had to, instead of just doing mobile first, we had to say that, you know, it, it's, it's desktop first, but extremely mobile friendly. Yeah. Mobile cannot be an afterthought. And secondly, let's make sure that we are making it adaptive. Uh, and what adaptive allowed us to do was, that we did not really have to start with mobile and then, you know, give the desktop experience that was just, you know, a, a larger footprint of mobile. Uh, we were able to have a fantastic desktop experience where we still had majority of our traffic. Uh, but on mobile, we said that we are not only going to have responsive where we are going to make uh, device type driven changes so that, you know, it is adaptive. So it can also be a really great mobile experience. So uh, it was very tough. Uh, and it took us a while to get to a point where our new experience was able to perform at the same level as the old experience as we were running all the A-B tests. And so we did not, it took us, you know, a few years to get to 100% of traffic going mm -hmm. to a new responsive web architecture uh, as opposed to, you know, even though the experience was ready, you know, rather quickly, uh, it took us yeah. a few years to, to truly take traffic to, to all, all the oh. new platform. Okay, and let, let's assume the, the shift we are seeing right now is as radical as like the first shift from desktop to mobile. Now we're seeing the shift like in buying, nobody is going to use filters anymore. So we are like, I, I usually say we are like the last filter generation. Uh, uh, the website was like 50% uh, on the screen you see is like a filter, like a, right. uh, whatever, uh, size, price, brand, uh, color. So yeah. it's like, it's kind of destroying the whole experience. So let's let's assume for a moment this kind of wish experience or uh, WeChat experience that's going to move into uh, into um, this sector here of buying uh, PCs and laptops. Um, would you then still do the same trick, I would say, uh, which you did like in 2008 and say, okay, let's go to Australia or another market, which is not so important, where you can set up like an independent team, though they can start thinking uh, uh, with, or they can start working with a blank uh, on a blank sheet instead of uh, instead of like working in the existing uh, infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we are just going through a complete redesign and we are using Australia and New Zealand as our 
you know, playing ground to try new things out and doing mm. radical changes on the website to not just be a marketplace-like experience where, you know, uh, you are just trying to sell things. Uh, and if you go back to Wayback Machine, you know, and you see Dell.com experience nine months ago uh, versus now, you would see a radical shift in how we talk to our customers uh, and not just leading them straight into some kind of a deal or sales. Uh, and yes, we did the same thing. Uh, you know, when you when you have a large business that is e-commerce based, uh, your risk profile changes a little, and and you cannot take major risks in major regions to start with. You need to start small, but then build it in a way where you know scaling it out to the rest of the world should be really fast. Mm. And so, I actually was in Sydney right before the lockdown happened in March, and and we planned out you know how we are going to make the redesign uh, tested in Australia and then New Zealand. Uh, and we still use, you know, we still put a small team out there and test out radically different uh, experiences um, and see how they perform there in that market. It's English speaking market as well. So it kind of helps us, you know, drive some kind of parallels with uh, some of the European countries like the UK and Ireland and, and, and North America. Uh, but we do see, you know, variation based on culture in our results, but it's a pretty good way of testing things. And then uh, once we have tested it out in Australia and New Zealand, uh, then we, you know, do a small test in North America and then we just, you know, expand it to uh, other regions. There are some nuances in countries like China and Japan where we have to do a lot more testing and do some variations. But for the most part, we have been fortunate with uh, using ANZ as a test bed and, and, and expanding elsewhere. Uh, Canada is another country that we use for um, our testing uh, for okay. some, this large radical changes. Yeah. Yeah. So w when you would ask like a, a German manufacturer, usually they say they, they, they test it in uh, Austria or Switzerland. Yeah. So that's our Belgium. That's our small markets where we can test. Yeah. So, um, and uh, when I talk to a retailer or retail e-commerce managers uh, and like this discussion, discussing this kind of shift, like in channels and it's getting more and more important, we say, okay, most of the old retailers are coming from a world where um, um, IT uh, departments were always seen as a cost center. So they were not like the main driver of the business. They were not create. Uh, they were not um, uh, helping with creating the USP. Uh, and then we say, okay, this is like different. So the management now has to ask. So uh, not to ask. Okay, please, um, Harsh, give me like give me like three options. I will choose uh, the option with the best chance risk profile. That's what actually managers are mitigating risks. In like in in a new world, we say, okay, that is. Uh, they have to turn it around. They have to ask. Uh, okay, Harsh, you have presented me like 10 ideas. So. What is uh, what is the problem? Why haven't we tested them out already? What kind of money do you need? What kind of more power do you need? That is kind of the modern form of uh, running a, a business like uh, like there. So uh, you don't need to you don't need to uh, 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 finger point to anybody here right. uh, uh, from the management. But how, how is like Dell looking at IT investments? Uh, um, uh, describe and seeing this kind of very this kind of uh, uh, polls here I've described. Yeah. So what you said initially was exactly is what exactly it looked like a decade ago where you know it was a cost center and and we would go and decide some large projects and they run for three years and you don't see any results you know uh, until then and then you know you have budget creeps and scope creeps and we have truly changed in the past five years where we have turned our entire um, digital organization and when i say digital not just e-commerce Uh, including uh, our uh, IT applications that support supply chain and corporate and everything uh, to be outcome driven. And it really started uh, post our acquisition of EMC. We got this company called Pivotal, uh, which was really uh, you know, a leader in helping uh, drive human-centric design-driven development methodology. And so um, the way my organization works now with the e-commerce management organization or, or business organization is that Instead of creating this massive projects that run for six months or a year or three years, we have broken down our e-commerce experience in uh, a set of product lines and products, just like you mm. do with the product you are selling, right? So my shopping experience is broken down into explore, and explore is where you are exploring the products. Discover is everything about discovering the products, and you know, even though we don't like filtering as much as we did before, we people still filter. Uh, Results and search results is part of discovery. Yeah, that, that's only because you offer the filter option. 
Because I know. I know. Are like from the desktop world. We 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 always and and, and I guess you have also backgrounds in SEO, SEA. So that's yes. where that we think in like conversion optimization filters, how we can show that's though we we are the legacy here. Yes. Yes. No. I get it. I get it. Uh, then we had configure and product, and then in checkout we had cart and you know checkout and payment. And so we broke things down into product lines and and products where you know homepage is a product of explore product line. And the way we then started working with our e-commerce management organization is that we are not going to invest in projects anymore, but we are going to set objectives and key results for each of these products, OKRs. Mm -hmm. um, and OKRs are going to be defined by the by a balanced team of a product manager, designer, a set of engineers, and the business uh, you know owner of that product. And uh, and they are really going to then tell us you know how much investment we need to hit those okrs and we started making investment decisions at product level and they can actually get more investment six months down the line if they are hitting their objectives and key results so for example our homepage team created objectives and key results that included things like uh, increasing uh, seo traffic or uh, or reducing bounce rate reducing exit rate and they set those goals for six months Right? And we gave them one balanced team of six engineers, uh, a product manager and designer. And, and if they are doing really well as a team, then we increase the number of engineers that product can have. And so we really turned this into like a real uh, product model versus a bunch of projects so that hmm. we can truly make it customer outcome driven. So every product is now focused on uh, driving customer satisfaction up, uh, conversion up, reducing bounce or exit rate. They can define their own. But we also did not want to miss out on the end-to-end -end experience because when you do this, you can do really well in, in silos, but you need to make sure that the end-to-end -end experience is not impacted. So we have a set of cross-product leads who and cross-product designers who ensure that as these teams work on their objectives and key results for their products and product lines, we are not missing out on the end-to-end -end experience and journey. And then third thing we do is while doing all these things, we still run some enterprise-wide initiatives that are that are really bigger than the bread box. Things like, uh, you know, enabling a much better availability uh, information about our products. That requires work across the board. Uh, things like, you know, if we are ever having to do buy online, pick up in store, which we don't do yet because we don't have as much retail business as, as some other players. But if we have to do some of those things, those run across, you know, product lines and products, and then we still kind of put those initiatives. And their stories and features into the backlog of these product lines and products. But, but what really made us not be a cost center, and be a profit center, and be really customer outcome driven versus project and output driven, is when we created this product line and products. And when we said, we are no longer going to measure ourselves based on number of features that we launched. We are really going to measure ourselves on whether we hit the KPIs and objectives and key results that we have defined for ourselves. And that took us about three years to to get to. Ah, crazy, uh, crazy, but but there are still there might be projects uh, um, um, that are very hard, like to um, to create uh, or to to formulate like the key results uh, today on. So to be really innovative, and that's a problem with like new, that might be a new channel uh, uh, you try to adapt, like Instagram or so. Um, it's you have to try out new stuff. So in in um, we we started to advise some companies like a couple of years ago to say. You have to keep, I don't know, 5%, 10% of your investment budget um, and take it out of the risk management structure. You say your risk management structure is now OKRs, which is fine. But you still need this kind of structure where there's no uh, return on invest attached to yep. because otherwise you, you, you cannot innovate, innovate anymore. So how, how do you do it? Absolutely. So uh, it's exactly that. We, we have this, um, it's a similar phenomena where we have this concept of left to right and right to left. So like you said, majority of our investment is in left to right. You know, how do we incrementally improve our experience? Mm. Uh, but we have uh, some budget, uh, you know, set aside. We have not set, you know, exact percentage, uh, you know, for it. But we do set budget aside for right to left, which is really more radical things that we want to do. More, more, you know, blue sky, greenfield uh, experiments, which we would not otherwise go after. Uh, things like you know testing out our, an app in Alexa, right? We know that building an Alexa app is not not necessarily going to you know drive a uh, hundred millions in revenue for us in in the next year, but that's something we have to you know try our hands on. 
um, you know, trying out um, trying out a new way of having our experience. Like we actually did, we are actually experimenting our new franchise experience in Australia, where you can see our franchise page for, let's say, XPS products without filters. To your point, there are no filters <laughs> in there, right? And so yes, we do we yeah. do put you know set set budgets aside to do more right to left radical uh, changes. Uh, but you know, percentage of that budget varies really based on the overall pie. You know, like any other company and business, you need to look at your overall pie and and decide how much you are comfortable with. Uh, but uh, that's absolutely needed because incremental changes can help you, you know, feel like you are making tremendous progress in terms of conversion. But it would only take one, uh, you know, disruptor to come in and do something so radically different, like Uber and Lyft did, or Airbnb did that could you know truly catch you off guard and so you have to you have to make sure that you are doing both left to right and right to left mm. okay and maybe you've answered this question already by explaining how you how you manage uh, your teams but um uh, in the uh, when we talked before this podcast uh, I, I, i already asked you this question so um it seems to be a lot a little bit more um chaotic uh than than business something i didn't uh something i didn't uh, realize yes. before starting a software company so how do you manage then all the different it requests where people come to you and saying uh, uh harsh uh, there's this new technology mongodb i yes. know we have a lot of sql but you know as sql stuff was always so hard and mongodb with this kind of data lake ideas will solve it all We have to do it. I'm 100 sure it, it, it solves it. How and there's kind of this kind of MongoDB phenomena is like uh, happening every week in IT. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. So how how do you manage this? So this you know this happened probably about three four years ago, hmm. where our engineering teams were really passionate about uh, breaking our monoliths monoliths down into microservices, uh, being on cloud native architecture, uh, rewriting our apps in uh, in you know more um, You know, server-side uh, HTML, or, uh, or you know, into SPA when it comes to um, our account management and card and checkout apps. And when I was a product leader, I used to push back on those kinds of things because those kinds of things meant that you know I would get less in terms of new features and capabilities. When I took over engineering, just like yourself, you know, you started getting your feet wet into technology world. I realized quickly that by continuously focusing only on new features and functionalities while we were gaining share and we were gaining you know better conversion for the from a long term standpoint we were crippling ourselves because we were putting a lot more tech debt we were you know we were going slower than before because now we had even larger mm. code base that you can't really you know launch every day on uh, we were impacting quality and we were impacting availability no. and so when i became an engineering and product leader I had to take a step back and ask myself, how do I find the right balance? Uh, and the way I was able to find the right balance, uh, and 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 thanks to you know having done product before and now jumping into engineering, was I went and had a had a you know an open and conversation with my engineering leaders and said, look, now I understand how wrong I was when I thought about you know this product just as a way to launch new features and functionalities. But the only way we can actually keep investing in everything we want to do, whether it's microservice-based architecture, moving from SQL to you know Cassandra or Mongo or Kafka from RabbitMQ, if we can tie some really measurable customer and business objectives to these things. So like, hey, how are we going to do this? This is just the infrastructure swap. Like, well, no, there has to be something. So let's say we are going from Our monolith to uh, uh, you know VMware Tanzu-based uh, microservice-based architecture. Can you increase the page speed by doing that? It's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, okay, yeah. that's you know, if, if you increase page speed, uh, it increases conversion. And by the way, now Google, you know, from an SEO standpoint, looks at page speed as a, one of the most important things. So let's write it down. Uh, are you going to be able able to improve SEO? Absolutely, right? You are going to be able to do that. If our pages, you know, become faster, is our conversion going to go up? Okay, super. Okay, perfect. And then I pulled my product leaders in and say, "Hey, you guys, you guys know, you know, when we last time when we increased the page speed or reduced the uh, reduced the page load time by X percentage, whatever conversion went up by? Like, yeah, yeah, we have that data. Like, you know, they love data, right? Product managers. And so, yes. like, okay, perfect. And then we went to the requesters and business saying that, hey, look, um, if we truly become outcome driven versus you know features and functionality driven." Um, 
I have this proposition for you where I will help you gain the same amount of conversion you are planning on gaining in the next six months, uh, by, but by using a different set of tactics than new features. You would still be able to see the conversion lift. However, you will also be able to see much faster speed of delivery six months down the line, right? And initially they were hesitant, like, oh, I don't, we, we don't buy this, right? We said, okay, you know, we absolutely need to prove ourselves before you actually, you know, start believing in it. So instead of boiling the ocean and trying to do this for the entire Dell.com experience, let's take one small part of the puzzle. Let's just take configurator and let's take our personalization platform and let's just try this out there. And what they saw was that our configurator experience improved in terms of performance and page, page load time by more than 40%. The conversion went up, customers were happier, our CSET went up. And now our configurator team was no longer relying on the larger monolith where you know 200 developers decide together when to launch and orchestrate yes, yes. it and out. Yeah, and uh, like, 80, usually what we're seeing that 80% of the time developers uh, have their sitting in conferences discussing what to do and not uh, developing stuff. Yes. Right. And so then like business, our mm -hmm. business partners were like, wow, not only we were able to achieve our outcomes, you guys are now launching every day. And, and that experiment uh, required us to you know, build that relationship and partnership and trust with our business partners. But the next thing we know is next time we, we had to do some new things about business partners would actually come themselves and say, hey, can we move it to our cloud native platform? Even though they don't know exactly what cloud native means in terms of the actual underlying technology, they started coming to us and saying that, hey, I want to do cloud native first, and then I will build new features. So it really mm -hmm. took us about a year and a half to two years to, to socialize it, evangelize it, convince it, look at it from an outcome standpoint. And now my engineering leaders know that when they come to me with a new request like you know going from RabbitMQ to Kafka, they have to come with a, yes, a, a customer outcome driven, yes, or, or it okay. could be like you know like for RabbitMQ to Kafka, the proposition that they brought to me was that you know today it takes us you know x amount of time to update pricing across all of these countries, 130 plus countries we do business in, and we can bring it down to five minutes. Okay. okay, so you so you say before this kind of uh, a change in the infrastructure, this like native clouds or whatever it means, like uh, um, in specific terms, um, the uh, you you were like in the same situation, like lots of retailers today. Uh, uh, I know a couple of companies that say, okay, um, we don't need to put new items on the requirement list for IT because, like internally uh, in the team, it's uh, we we tell it's like a graveyard of ideas because yes. you put them on and then they're gonna die, so nobody's gonna deliver them because of the infrastructure stuff. But we see like uh, uh, a similar development in uh, in companies that tried out this kind of microservice approach because they pushed it really hard and said, okay, let's break up the monolith, let's like build. Uh, The team from Hash uh, takes over PIM uh, and yeah. he can decide Java versus PHP, whatever. Uh, and then uh, uh, we have to, we only have to meet uh, uh, during like launch process uh, we where we had to um, uh, decide uh, what kind of process pulls data from where uh, and who's responsible for what. And but we what we saw there in those uh, in those um, replatforming projects is that um, they only uh, they only combine the disadvantages of both worlds. The disadvantages from the microservice world and from the monolith world. So it, it, it so it was like it was kind of distributed monoliths. Yes, saw. yes, distributed monolith is, is, is not a, it's not it's not a myth. It's a reality. Distributed yeah. monolith is reality, and yeah. uh, and look, every company that goes from monolith to microservices based architecture has to go through some level of distributed monolith uh, phenomena. Uh, fortunately, you know we recognize that you know pretty early on in the process. And while I would say that, you know, we still have distributed monoliths because of that, that structure. One thing we, we kind of started doing was we started moving from, uh, from, you know, orchestration driven model to choreography driven model. Mm -hmm. So in orchestration driven, you know, microservice based architecture, you are still going through a string of microservices. Mm -hmm. So you are still kind of relying on, you know, every service to do its job in a, in a, in someone like is running orchestra. Mm. But choreography is where you can truly make your customer facing experience an island and you have a broker and broker does everything. And so you're you are really, you know, choreographing versus orchestrating. Uh, and and that's where we took our shopping experience. So our mm. shopping experience when we uh, you know re-platformed it, 
we realized that we, we were going down this path. And so we kind of started, you know, driving a shift where, uh, you know, instead of having distributed monoliths where my shopping experience still calls 20 different services to get data. Uh, and, you know, it actually create, has its own broker that choreographs. Yeah. So we don't have to, we don't have to live in that world, but, but we still have, you know, distributed monoliths out there. Uh, they are, they are still better than the past because they are, they are, they are, you know, loosely coupled, but we need to get to a point where everything is truly choreographic driven, but it's, it's truly, you know, uh, decoupled from each other. But would you agree to the following statement? So I 100% get that you are able to manage it and maybe we can spend the last minute by uh, get a little bit better um, understanding of your um, of your team setup. So how many teams and how, how you orchestrate them. But we saw this kind of monolith to, uh, to um, um, microservice movement uh, with teams with, I don't know, 10 developers where there was no uh, microservice architect. So in overall, it's, it's, it's still a, um, a resource you don't uh, find at every corner. Uh, um, and, and smaller teams um, that were still managed like a cost center, um, they never, we never saw like a positive outcome. So that they, they did not have the time, they did not have did not have the competences to split up like ten developers in like five microservice <laughs> teams without a, without the without the orchestration. And it uh, it takes a lot of time. So sometimes five years, six years, seven years. And as you said, so you're still in between in in the uh in the transformation uh process though that is, i would not uh recommend such a such a monolith to microservice move in companies with uh with less than i don't know a couple of dozen developers or people that really understand the uh, uh the infrastructure impacts of microservices so, so would you agree or disagree you are absolutely right the the thinking that if you move from monolith to microservice you need fewer engineers is 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 a myth Right, moving from monolith to microservices-based architecture does not need uh, less or fewer engineers. In fact, in some cases, you may need more engineers than you did before because now you are having to orchestrate. However, it it increases the availability, quality yes. of service, and speed of delivery. Yeah. What the I output do, the output per, de per developer increases. It increases, uh, right? But you, but you need more need people. More. Yeah. What I would say yeah. is that. Uh, You know, when you decide to go from monolith to, to microservices, what we learned from our first experience, you know, a decade ago, which we did not repeat in our latest transformation, is that do not get into the trap of wanting to move the entire ecosystem from monolith to microservices at the same time. Mm. Because that is going to become a multi-year project where you are not going to be able to deliver any new value to your customers or your business. And so the way we approached it is we actually said that we are only taking home page and we are only moving home page to a micro app and we continued development of new features and functionalities on our monolith while home page was being yes. taken out. Then we took the category path. Then we took the franchise page. It means we did not completely shut down the business and the customer outcomes, but did it in silos. But you are absolutely right. If you are a 12 people e-commerce team, Uh, and you have a complex monolithic architecture, going from monolith to microservices-based architecture, you should only do it if you are committed to putting more people, yes. more engineers uh, to yeah. actually nurture those, nurture that architecture. Yeah, and we see it now with some dying retailers uh, uh, that don't have any time. Uh, and now uh, the CEOs understand, okay, brick and mortar is kind of dying. Uh, uh, <laughs> click and collect won't do the trick. We have to invest more in e-commerce. And then, okay, let's now as we know that uh, uh, let's reinvent the platform within the next six months. So that's actually nobody's going to happy with those. Uh, no, projects. you can't. You can, can't yeah. do. You can't do that in six months, right? At that can you give? Of. Can you? Can you give us some insight because you're running such a big platform? So about uh, some insights about your team structure. So. So, um, I understood you're managing uh, not a little, little bit more than a dozen people. Uh, so, uh, uh, how many are there, and um, uh, how many are working like on the existing website, mobile app, versus like how many are working like on really new stuff? Yeah. So, like I said, we have broken down our experiences into product lines and products. Yes. Right. I mentioned it earlier: explore and discover and configure, and, and each of them have products like home page, configurator, product details page. Those are products. And so the way uh, my organization is structured is is with single threaded ownership of each of you know one or more product lines under each of my leaders. So uh, we have about 
600 you know full-time engineers and then uh, we do hire you know contingent uh, contractors uh, based on the the surge needs that we have uh, but really from a structure standpoint we do not we try not to move around our engineers from product to product and product lines to product. We don't treat them like they're a pool of resources that we move around. Uh, and each, I have two engineering leaders. One engineering leader owns our upper funnel uh, experiences like shopping and learn. Another engineering leader owns our bottom of the funnel experiences. And then I have two uh, product management leaders. And under each of the engineering leader, uh, we have engineering managers who own multiple product lines. And then each of those managers have leaders who own their who own their products, right? So mm. each each leader then owns owns multiple products. Um, the way we allocate capacity is that every product line, like explore, discover, configure, uh, and and product, they have they have set product capacity that just allows them to keep the business running, compliance, keeping the lights on, making sure you are maintaining your databases and all those things. And then for doing new things, depending on their OKR and how much investment we want to make in those areas, we put additional investment in those teams. And that investment is the one that varies from year to year, depending on you know where we want to invest. We want to do a lot more payment types this year and new digital wallets and the payment uh, engineering team would get more uh, capacity than before. But everyone gets some set capacity that they are going to keep forever. Uh, as long as uh, you know the website is going to be out there to just keep the lights on and then additional capacity on top. Um, that's how we are structured. Um, uh, you know our structure looked very different in the past, where you know we would just move people around. And what we realized was that when you are moving everyone around, including engineering leads, people treat their code base like a like a hotel and not a house, mm-hmm. right? And when you when you actually start, you know making a more long-term investment in, in your product and product lines and people start treating it like their home and they invest a lot more in it. The other big change we made was that we used to have this notion of level one support and level two support and level three support. What it meant was that if something broke in production, it would go to those frontline teams first. We kind of, you know, we kind of took that out and said, you know, the single threaded engineering teams for each product are going to be responsible for building, maintaining, and supporting the product. Uh, and there was a shift that took about a year. But what it did was that now the engineers who are building the product are responsible for supporting it. It means that they they automatically became a lot more responsible and accountable when they were building the code because they knew that now they will have hmm. to get a call at midnight. So, yes. <laughs> so we, and we turned the, we turned the existing hmm. support organization into a true SRE practice, site reliability engineering. And their job was their job is to actually have instrumentation, monitoring, observability, automation, self-healing, all the way from experience to the infra, to storage server networking. So we kind of kept the site reliability engineering function, but that went vertically all the way to the infra. But the actual application, you know, support now, you know, rests within the engineering team, so that they just have support. And we did the similar thing with. Uh, quality and testing organization where we no longer uh, we no longer rely on uh, a, a dedicated testing organization to test code. Testing and QA is now the responsibility of the same balance teams that that build the code. We have a thin layer of testing organization that does end-to-end validation all the way to you know fulfillment, but the actual product testing resides within the product engineering organization. Cool. Maybe uh, um, I forgot like one question. Like um, I, I think when it, when it comes to um, IT challenges, uh, you have seen them all over the last yeah. like uh, yeah. twelve years. And, and actually, you solved the challenge. That is a really cool thing. You solved like the challenges ten year ago, ten uh, years ago that uh, lots of retailers have today. Yeah. Uh, looking forward, uh, and and I still I think like uh, all the big companies like SAP, Salesforce, IBM knocking at your door saying use our software doesn't make any sense from you what what you have described because they're not solving your problem um but uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, more about uh the future outlook so the one thing is like optimizing the existing infrastructure sure. um, get rid of the latest legacy and uh, and there will be like an even faster change in the future because like uh what is built today is probably uh, um, heavy legacy in three years from now already so there must be some organizational changes that um, uh, that uh, address this kind of issues uh but is there anything like 
big stuff coming where you say, okay, that's where part of the engineer team is really working on, where you're keen to learn if this is kind of working or not? Because obviously web, the website is working. Uh, mobile environment is working. I saw some Dell apps in the App Store, but it is kind of, I think it's kind of monitoring apps, for example, yeah. for infrastructure, yeah. for example. Uh, though, is there something, especially when it comes to selling more to B2C or B2B, Uh, that you're working on, on uh, which is not like desktop and mobile oriented? Yeah, so you know, some of the things that you would see uh, the larger organization is working on is there is a pretty big shift from buying infrastructure outright to buying infrastructure as a service, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, what, what, what the big companies are realizing is that public cloud is not the answer to everything. True. It's all hybrid uh, and private cloud. So yeah. uh, one of the biggest yeah. things that As we you had... say, uh, cloud only means uh, the computer is anywhere else. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So one of the biggest, one of the big shifts we are making from an e-commerce standpoint and the overall business standpoint that we are enabling, which our teams are working diligently on and we are excited about, is that we, we see cloud as an operating model and not as a destination. Mm. It means that you can actually you know, manage your data center like a cloud in an OPEX-driven model. And one of the biggest things we are working on, and you can go to you know, Dell Technologies on Demand, uh, you can Google it, or you can, you can check out Dell Technologies um, uh, cloud console uh, that, we have, uh, that, that we are you know, coming out with, which is really about letting our customers uh, get infrastructure as a service. So you pay on a monthly basis. It still yes. gets shipped to your, still get shipped to your data center, right? Yeah. But uh, but but enabling but it, that model yeah. from an e-commerce standpoint, it's a pretty big shift for us, right? Because yeah, that's it, true. But that's true. But that's that's uh, what we are also seeing, like in office equipment, right? Yeah. So it yeah. doesn't make sense to buy uh, Latitude anymore, like oh my uh, my right. X1 or so. It's much like from a company perspective, it's much better just to to rent it and just get a new model when it's uh, when it's done and you you take care of refurbishment and like second-hand market or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so changing our product data model, our billing model, our payment model, how we keep track of these things. We didn't have to worry about these things in the past because we were just selling things yes. outright. And so that's one, you know, one of the biggest things we are working on, we are very excited about. Uh, that's on the you know, B2B front. On the B2C front, what we are really doing, and it's really cool, is that We, we, we have put more focus on human-centric design approach in the past few years than, than before. And, um, and, and what we realized is that there is no one better in the industry than the, the PC makers and server makers than you know, anyone else who would be able to go out and understand exactly how people make buying decisions on these products. Just mm -hmm. like Airbnb went and figured out, you know, what's the best way people would like to pick the right uh, place to stay at. Um, you know, Uber figured that out for, for travel. We really are on the mission to be the best place for people to figure out the right infrastructure needs. And a great example I would give you where we use human-centric design-driven approach and it works really well. And now we are expanding it across the world from a B2C standpoint is in the past, we used to use data and customer verbatim to make decisions on, you know, what kind of hypothesis we can build and what kind of experiences we need to go and A-B test uh, and, and, you know, do usability testing on. And what used to happen was our hypothesis was so much data-driven that we never got a chance to go and ask customers if there was, if they had a moonshot approach to this, if there were no limitations, how would you go about it? I use mm -hmm. the BlackBerry versus iPhone approach, right? We, Apple would have never been able to come up with iPhone had they just looked at BlackBerry and say, what I can improve in BlackBerry. So a good example I would give you is that uh, gaming. So we always had, you know, gaming machines that we sold on our website and we continued adding more features, you know, immersive experience and showing people how great our products are and how cool they look and how much power they have. But when we actually met with the gamers in person, at a gaming conference and did not actually show them any hypothesis that we had with our preconceived notion. And we said, hey, if you had no restrictions, if you had a website that would let you, you know, find the right gaming machine for you, how would you go about it? And what they told us was that, I would like to start from a game. Hmm. We only play, you know, very specific set of games and no one in the industry is able to tell us right now 
if I pick a game, no one can tell us which mm-hmm. machine would have the right frame per second for that game. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. And like, yeah. oh, wow. But you wouldn't so, understand if you don't play games, right? It's, right. It's true. So you're like, okay. Uh, okay, that's interesting. We were not in the business of selling a ton of games, but we said, okay, so now we need to build, test an experience where you can select so, you know, from you know, 10 of the games first. Uh, and then we need frame per second for each game benchmarked. Mm. Well, that's a pretty big mission, right? That's, that's a lot. Mm. So we did a small test where we took like two of our Alienware machines and we actually you know, worked with a third party and benchmarked frame per second for like 10 games. And we you know, scrapped together uh, this experience very quickly where you can go and pick you know, War of Warcraft or, or you can pick you know, Fortnite and then it will tell you exactly what the frame per second was for that game for that machine. And boom, our conversion was off the roof from something we had never seen and we actually had spent less time than we had spent in the past building you know, new features and functionalities. Mm. And then we expanded and we signed the contract to now to do benchmarking for all the gaming machines for like all oh, yes. top games. Yeah. And we ex- <laughs> now we can go to dell.com slash gaming and the way you shop for gaming machines is now completely different. So my final point is that we need to do a lot more of this from a B2C standpoint. That's true. Where That's true. And the interesting thing, you're still selling the same stuff at same the same stuff. price. Same it's, price. Uh, it's only different uh, buying experience. It's, yes. a, it's a very interesting... Uh, and it's not uh, filter-driven. Yeah. It's not filter-driven, right? It's yeah. truly based on the need it, of that customer. Yeah, you filter by games, yes. But So uh, how, yes. Do I, how do I expand this to hmm. rest of the personas? So, for example, we tried this with, uh, with you know, uh, demographics where they did not know much about laptops and desktops, but they needed mm. one. And they told us that, hey, I would like something where I can tell you what I have today. And you tell me what is something similar or better. Ah. So we let them put, like, freeform text, and they would put, like, Apple MacBook XYZ, HP NV, and... And we, we ran some, you know, initially we did some, you know, manual mapping, and then we slowly built, you know, ML algorithms. And then, and if you're a grandma, you know, somebody you don't know anything about machines, you know, you can just now put in Apple MacBook XYZ, show me the best Dell that is close to this or better. So that's what not just, you know, the, the infrastructure mm-hmm. and PC industry. I would say that if you are a retailer, if you are, you know, a spatial products manufacturer, start thinking about how you can use human-centric design. Stop going to your customers with, do you like A or B? Put a whiteboard in front of your customers and ask them if they mm. had to shop for what you are selling, how they go about it if they did not have anything in front of them. That's what I would, I would recommend. That's very cool closing words. So I, actually, I learned a lot uh, uh, here. Now I'm, I'm, I'm eager to exchange my, uh, my X1 laptop uh, and search for on the Dell website and let's see what I can see or what I can rent. I think that's like in two or three years, nobody going to buy anymore. It's only like we rent uh, uh, or lease, uh, lease a laptop anymore. I hope we can continue this conversation and uh, record maybe a second session uh, uh, in, in 2021. Uh, uh, thank you for your time, for your wake, uh, for um, for the kind of history class when it comes to IT uh, 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 challenges. Uh, um, and uh, see you in the next episode. It was an absolute pleasure, and thank you so much for having me, Alex. I hope you liked this episode. Please uh, leave a review on iTunes or SoundCloud or Spotify. Recommend this podcast to some of your friends. You will hear more interesting episodes from the European market and from the US market in the next months. My co-hosts, Willem Blom and Lena Hackeler, are in the midst of financing rounds in their companies, uh, but they will um, they will hold a lot of new sessions with very interesting guests for the Black show later this year. 